When you do an isometric, you need you need to be really in tune with yourself, and you need to un understand what's going on with your body and why you're doing an isometric and why you're constantly engaging and pulling yourself into position. And if you don't understand why you're doing that, then then you never really should progress out of isometrics until you can understand that. And it's not really like, it's not really I can tell you, hey, once you figure, like once you do this, then you can progress. It's really an internal feeling. That was Dr. Mark Wetzel, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here with us for episode 173. And yes, we have back Dr. Mark Wetzel. He is a chiropractor based out of Nashville, Tennessee. He was the guest back on episode 116, where he took a deep dive into the execution and significance of extreme isometrics and a lot of great information on the energy system demands, uh, the idea of velocity, recovering everything, and a whole lot more. Uh, Dr. Mark not only is a chiropractor, but also has a diverse experience and is an expert in the neurology branch of, chiro of chiropractic care and sports performance. I originally met Dr. Mark about, I want to say, three years ago at Elite uh, Level Performance in Collierville, Tennessee. So ever since that point, it's been great to stay in touch, and we're back for another show. Uh, on the episode today... This one is heavy. So last one really focused specifically on extreme isometrics. This show does that, but it really expands things out. So it's an awesome compliment to 116. If you like that show, you're really going to love this one. And just a quick aside or FYI, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with what an extreme isometric is. This is a good prelude for the show. But an extreme isometric is taking an, um, a joint to its extreme position. So a common one would be a lunge. So taking a lunge to a very deep position and basically pulling, actively pulling yourself downwards and holding that for an extended period of time. So that's what you can do with a push-up or a hang from the bar. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but that's the basic exercise mean when we're talking extreme isometric. So again, on the show today, um, Dr. Mark goes into all things muscle compensations and what that means for athletic performance. I'm, I'm sure you've heard the term muscle compensation, this person's compensating, but going into that from a survivalistic perspective is something that we're going to kick this show off with. Dr. Mark is going to get into how extreme isometrics and extreme slows play into correcting these compensation patterns. So so not just from an energy systems perspective or using it for conditioning or work capacity, but in terms of correcting compensations, what do extreme isometrics and, slow, and even slows, which we did not talk about so much on the last show, have to offer? Uh, Mark also had a really cool case study. I wanted to mention this. I should have mentioned this a few a minute ago, but my, um, a significant thing that brought Mark back is we were talking about a case study that he had using uh, a series, so several exercises, all long isometric holds with the baseball team. He got some really great results with it, and so he gives the whole program, the exercises he uses, and then, of course, the before and after. So I, I think with all these things, it's cool to talk theory, but again, the... The proof is always in the pudding. We're trying to get our feet dirty with this stuff and talking results. And at the end of the day, it's about the result that we got. And so this is so it's great to talk to Dr. Mark because we have this uh, blend of theory, but then also this how to actually go and practically apply it in a team situation. So beyond isometrics, we're going to talk tracking uh, central nervous system fatigue and how to do that in a session from a level of breathing as well as the eyes and tracking ability. And that goes not into just into working out, but that also goes into team sport play and team sport execution as well. 
We're going to finish the show with Dr. Mark's ideas on tapering, some of the traditional ideology versus a more progressive view of that topic. This was a really fun show, very uh, not only informational, but also incredibly practical. So I know you'll get something awesome out of it. I really enjoyed this one. I know you will too. Let's get on to the show. Mark, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, it's good to talk to you again. It's good to talk to you. Glad to be back. Yeah, so I, I know we had an awesome talk on isometrics last time. Um, I wanted to ask you another question about that. But before we do, because I know this is part of the question, is could you explain the idea of muscular compensations? Like, well, I hear a lot in the, uh, like, that Jay Schrader or neurological training or, you know, sport type world of, of um, muscle compensations or you're, you're, there's a compensation going on. And I think that could mean different things to different people. But what is, what's a muscle compensation and how do we, what can we do about that? I mean, the word compensation definitely gets uh, tossed around quite a bit. Um, I think kind of in the general population, if you just think of, if you have like an optimal way of moving, okay, and I guess that's really hard to define one optimal way of moving, but think of just like walking, right? So if you're walking um, with all the right muscles being engaged and you're moving forward and your body is really efficient, okay, so that's a good pattern. So the moment something breaks down, okay, whether you, you know, get, uh, you like trip over a rock, right? And then your toe starts to hurt. So then immediately you take pressure off your right foot and you put more pressure in your left foot. So now you're uh, essentially not balanced or you're not equal and you're, that's a compensation. So in order to keep moving forward, your brain finds a way to maintain walking but essentially at a price and that price is uh, the demand of more energy from a different system or different muscles. And then that's going to not be as optimal as say as walking. So you've created a compensation within your body. Um, and then even to take it one step further. Um, so I'm a, I'm a chiropractor and I, uh, you know, see a lot of patients and I actually look at the way people breathe quite a bit. And so when I think of a compensation, um, it's, it's altering your movements to make your body breathe more efficiently. So when we breathe, I mean, we breathe 17,000 times a day, 15 to 17,000 times a day, and we have to do it to survive, right? It's the second most thing that our body does next to a heartbeat uh, daily. And so we're going to make sure that we breathe that many times a day. And so we are going to compromise our movement to make sure that we breathe efficiently. And so sometimes our breath can be out, right? Or we're stressed. And so our body will compensate to make sure that our breath stays maintained. So again, that's a compensation with the movement. And so it can be as simple as, like I said, tripping over a rock, or you can get as in depth as uh, seeing how you're breathing and what type of breathing pattern you have and how that alters your movement. So anything along those lines is essentially a compensation. It's just your body's altering some sort of um, homeostasis to make sure that you survive essentially in that present moment. Uh, so in short, it's, it's kind of like survival mechanisms where your body uses a little bit different technique to get the job yep. done. I, I was going to yeah. say too, yeah, like um, we talked a little bit before the show started, but say doing like a really heavy squat and you were doing a set of eight reps or something and the sixth rep, your, your glutes and quads started to tire out a little bit. And so to survive and not get crushed by the weight, you would perhaps use a more spinal erector dominant strategy where your body would lean forward. And so that would be a, a compensation through the core or a survival yep. mechanism in the course of a squat set. 
Um, Pretty much, it's it's. I like that. It's a survival mechanism. Absolutely. And what's the? I mean, what's the ramifications of picking? I, I mean, I guess we we slowly pick these up over time as human beings, right? From either faulty movement or probably faulty shoes or surfaces or just movement, lack of movement, lack of movement diversity. I suppose there's a lot of reasons in the course of daily life and training. Yeah. I mean, it's just our lifestyle is actually encouraging compensations, right? We're sedentary. We sit at a desk. We look at a computer screen, you know, blue light, um, uh, stress, right? Our stress nowadays is, is our boss going to yell at us as opposed to 500 years ago, you know, you know, are we going to die the next day, essentially? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, as far as the brain is concerned, I think there's, there's always similar mechanisms, though. Uh, but oh, it's, it's exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. But we're not sitting around, you know, 500 or however many years ago. That's not something that you always worried about. You just, it was just in the fl- flash in the pan in the moment, and then it was done. Yeah. Or like the animal exactly. who, who shakes themselves out afterwards after they almost get eaten by a predator, and then they're, they're good. Um, yeah. But uh, with, in terms of the, so in terms of all these compensations, where do isometrics, things like the extreme isometrics, which we talked about last show, and then extreme slows. So these, these methods, how do these play into the compensation pattern? Yeah, so um, basically a compensation will occur at, a, at a most at a high velocity, right? So um, this is why... A lot of people get injured like during a game when they're playing a sport or if they're doing a new max in the weight room or whatever. It's at a high velocity is when your compensation will come out, right? If we're going slow and steady, we can actually maybe maintain or catch it before, um, you know, we injure ourselves. And so when we talked about last time, when you do an isometrics and you're actually engaging and squeezing the correct muscles, your muscles are turning on and off extremely fast. And so, again, you're actually at high velocity. All right. So if I take a lunge, for instance, um, and I put someone in a lunge and I go, hey, hold this lunge for five minutes and I maybe give him um, a few cues, right? Like make sure your knees stacked over your ankle and put the back leg behind you and, and sit up straight. Right. Very basic cues. And then I watch him hold it and I tell him, just just hold it. You know, don't do anything. Just hold. And basically where the body starts to break down or even if they just get into the position to begin with that is faulty right i already know that whenever they go out and run that they are going to look like that position okay so for instance if your back leg is slightly tilted uh, or ankle is um, not straight right like your heel is maybe angled out or in um, so when they go out and sprint and you get a video, you can test this on anyone, and you slow it down, slow motion video, you can see that whenever they sprint, their back ankle will do the exact same thing as that they were doing in that isometric hold. So when you look at an isometric, you can immediately tell where their body is really faulty, all right, already has compensations, or let's say they're in position really well for the first 30 seconds, and they start to break down. You find those areas where they break down first, and you know that those are their weakest areas. So those are the areas that are going to compensate first, all right, when they go out and, let's say, sprints or whatever sport that they're doing. What's, um, in terms of the extreme slows, how does that fit in? Because I've heard that has a few specific, uh, neuro- some specific neurological ramifications, like doing a 
starting at the top of a rear foot elevated split squat and then dropping, taking like a minute and a half or something like that to drop to the bottom. What are the ramifications of doing something like that? Yeah. So again, it's kind of the same concept. So let's say they're in a very kind of experienced athlete and at the bottom position, they maybe know how to maintain a perfect position. Okay. So then you start them at the top and you make them go painfully slow, right? So maybe, like I said, a minute and a half, two minutes. And again, you'll watch during the movement as they're going down, you'll see exactly where they're gonna break down. So they may be really good at compensating because in the middle, they break down, but at the bottom, they regain their perfect position, quote unquote. So you can use an extreme slow to, again, really identify where their compensation is. And the biggest example of that is like a bench pose, right? So I see this, and the only reason why it's a good example is because I see this most often. So maybe most people don't see this, but when people do an extreme slow bench, and I'll just, just the bar, right? So the bar is pretty light. Um, so most people I see actually fail maybe three or four inches right above their chest. And what happens is their shoulders, they can't, they round. And so they can't keep their scaps in. And so for instance, if I were to take that person and say, hold the bottom position, but their scaps are winging out, then they're just getting really good at being in a bad compensation pattern. And so then when they go and I go, okay, let's do a max bench, their bench doesn't go up because essentially you're just reinforcing a compensation that only allows you to bench X amount of weight. So in order you fix that compensation, then you can progress throughout the movement because he may be able to hold 200 pounds at the bottom, but he can't push through four inches above because that's where his compensation was. So when you do an extreme slow, you can really see where their body breaks down. And then once you see where it breaks down, then you can actually train in that position. So I have people literally start like holding five pound dumbbells and I'm like, hold that in a bench position, four inches above your chest. And they're like, okay. And so I get them at position. I go, no, 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 but keep your scaps in. And they're like, oh, and they don't even know how to put their scaps in. Like they've lost that ability in that range of motion to engage those scaps, but just in that range of motion. So it's really important to watch where during the movement, they break down. And so an extreme slow, number one, allows the user, the athlete, to see where they break down because they'll feel it. And then also the coach, because you can look and be like, yeah, look, your shoulders, push your scaps back in or round your shoulders um, or externally rotate your shoulders, things like that. So it's just a really good tool that you can use as a coach or even for yourself. You can look at yourself in a mirror and just be like, oh yeah, look, I can't squeeze this muscle when I'm here. But if I go up an inch, I can squeeze it here. So things like that. What's um, with the extreme slows or even, I mean, I know an extreme isometric is a lot of time. It's a lot longer than typical work done in the weight room. Is there an advantage or what's the advantage in your mind of from doing, let's say, extreme slow bench press a minute 30 down to uh, like a, just a, say a 10 second eccentric or something or a six to 10 second, like a, I think a common in the a common phase and you have triphasic training and that initial phase, if it's not super maximal, uh, a lot of people will use just slow tempo work. So 10 seconds down or five up, five down to establish technique. What advantage does going a little bit lighter and going really painfully slow have over something that's a little more weight and a moderate pace of movement? Um, so 
I guess from experience, I can say that when you go slow, extremely slow, um, it's you have less chance of injury, number one, because it's less weight. And number two, you, you really reinforce or try to eliminate where that compensation is. So if I know where the compensation is, it's three, four down on the bench. If I'm using lightweight, I can then hold it for a minute if I use lightweight. When you're holding it for a minute, your brain is essentially getting feedback in that position to say, hey, keep these engaged, keep these engaged, keep these engaged for a minute. That's about, you know, however much longer if you were to just do it for a 10 second slower and eccentric because you're only in that position for, I don't know, two or three seconds, depending on how much weight you're using or things like that. And so I'm not saying that doing the 10 seconds is bad. It's actually something you want to progress up to, or it's, it's like the next level, right? You shouldn't really progress past that until you've eliminated all compensations, because then you're just increasing your chance of injury, quote unquote, or you're learning how to be better and not an optimal pattern motor program. What do you think about the specificity of, of these movements? Like I know the ISO lunge, ISO extreme lunge is probably the staple and I've heard it uh, mentioned as an extremely good compensation fixer or even the, the quote-unquote old man's exercise because it helps uh, those who older athletes who have a lot of those survival-based compensations to kind of iron them out. But is there a level yeah. where it's like specific? For example, if I, let's say I was doing a lot of barbell back squats and I was really like, I was really pushing the wrong way. I was doing a real uh, lump or like lean forward and use my erector dominant strategy rather than using my glutes out of the bottom. Would I, uh, I mean, maybe this is splitting hairs a little bit, or maybe I could do both, but would I really need to get into the squat itself and do that extreme slow or isometric to fix my patterning or just, and I mean, obviously the only thing that really matters is what happens when you sprint and jump and how your innate function is right. Or, does, does there have to be a lot of specificity there in your their, your opinion? Um, can you get most of what you need in just an ISO lunge or should there be multiple exercises used? Yeah, well, I kind of have a rule of thumb. So you, you, um, you start centrally located and you work your way out. So our, our spine, <clears throat> our body spine craves stabilization. So if you break stabilization of the spine and anything you do past that, your brain is actually trying to re-establish stabilization, all right? So it's kind of like, like it's just a different motive, right? So you have to create spine stabilization first. So whatever movement you're doing, and it is, it's very kind of, um, it's different per person. And I actually do want to talk about this too. So um, like when you start doing isometrics and you really get involved and how they make you feel. Um, I've come to the conclusion that the perfect position doesn't really exist. Okay. Cause let's say you're working on, all right, I've, I can't tuck my pelvis. And so now in the lunge for two weeks straight, I've tucked my pelvis. I've tucked my pelvis. I've felt those muscles engaged and I keep doing it, keep doing it. And then all of a sudden one day you're like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm tucking too much. So now I need to go the other way. I need to, okay, maybe arch my back or stabilize my lower back. And so actually, every time you do an isometric, you should feel some sort of discrepancy on which way you should be pulling, right? But the goal is to essentially be as, as centrally stabilized as possible. 
So if you look at someone and they'll say, let's go to the back to the back squat and you round your back too much. Um, so then that would be like an upper back stabilization. So you can't keep your scaps in, so your upper back rounds. And then now you're forcing your lower back to essentially have to work. So then I would just start with the upper back, whatever isometric you can do. And there's so many you can do, but I mean, you can stabilize a lot in the lunge. I think that's what makes the lunge so beneficial because you can get a full body contraction using the lunge. I don't think people also realize that as well, but that kind of answer your question. I feel like I went off on a tangent. A <laughs> no, that's no, that good. I, well, I like, I like the idea of fi- the body and finding center and even perfect positions. It reminds me, I've been reading a Gary Ward's uh, or rereading, I should say Gary Ward's book, what the foot is what it's called. And he talks about the idea of there really isn't like a perfect an absolute perfect technique or there's a your body's center is constantly kind of changing based off where you are in space (laughs) so there's never that like we live in a world where we're always trying to find x perfect position like you said like oh i'm going to compensate by really tucking my pelvis back and now i shifted a little bit and and center is constantly floating around a little bit so um it makes sense to me it it makes sense too how you were saying and i think about the isometric lunge the extreme iso lunge and i've heard uh, the idea of your kind of trying to like rip yourself apart when you're doing it when the one leg is in front you're and the the other leg you're really straightening out the leg the leg and back and you're really pulling yourself downwards aggressively there's a lot of um like torsion and and torque in that movement is that kind of what you're referring to in terms of that that spinal stabilization yeah so because if your one leg is forward right um let me think about this so I mean, I guess for the lunge, I mean, the lunge is, is a running position. So you're obviously going to be split. And so you're just trying to create the most stable spine when you're in kind of a lengthened position, quote unquote. So whatever muscles need to be engaged to create that stability is what you're going to do, um, I guess. That's kind of kind of where i'm going with my thought there kind of lost my train of thought yeah i'm trying to i'm trying to pick it up i feel like so i mean because the extreme isometrics you are in the extreme the maximally lengthened position so the nature of stability of of trunk stability or spinal stability in those extreme lengthened positions is is it more challenging for the body so the body is going to adapt in a better way is that versus a shortened positions or if it's a bilateral or something like that is that what you're saying um, I don't know if it's going to adapt a better way. It's just that's the position you're in. So you, you want to adapt in that position. And so the lunge is just so popular because it's a running position and in a sport, everyone runs. So I think that's just why it became so popular. But you can do any isometrics and make it as hard as you want. You know what I mean? Like it literally doesn't need to be um, – you could like stand still like a tall and like a powerful position and squeeze your muscles and still create some sort of um, hormonal response to make it feel like you did a workout. So I think the lunge is just really popular because one, it's hard, right? Yeah. Gravity is is not working for you (laughs) on that one. Um, And so it's just a good exercise, right? Like just creates a lot of muscles you got to engage and figuring out how to do it. And it's just a good exercise really. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, now has available in their store. You hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the free lap timing system in the K-Box, which I have and use regularly. 
But today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the Gymware and the new portable flex unit. So let me start with the Gymware. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox, as the readings you get out of the Gymware go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 610 squatter versus a 511 point guard. So you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units. It's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as CoachMe Plus, Team Builder, and Athlete Monitoring. So new to the store is the Flex, which is the ultra portable and lower price travel version of the coach's favorite gym wear. So just like the gym wear, the Flex measures the shape of each rep, range of motion, total work done, eccentric dynamics, so for this and the gym aware, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, and I, I think you had a case study or an anecdote uh, that you were telling me about that were working with a bunch of, um, I believe, high school athletes, and they were just doing ISO oh, push-ups yeah. and ISO lunges <laughs> and ISO push-ups. What was that story? Yeah, so um, I kind of got hooked up with a baseball coach for um, high school when I used to work in Memphis, and um, they really liked my philosophy and just when it comes to sports in general or strength training in general. And so I was like, um, or they had an opportunity for me to coach their whole varsity baseball team. So this is high school baseball varsity. And side note, this day and age, um, the money that goes into high schools is crazy. Like they had a full blown weight room that was like right after school. And like, I don't know, it was just crazy. Like when I was in high school, I had like a little barn that we had some dumbbells in and that was it. But anyway, so three times a week, all right, I was able to train these guys for one hour and there was two groups. So, but everyone got one hour's worth of work and it was, uh, it was for three months, but they had crazy amount of breaks. And so it ended up being like 27 sessions, right? So 27 workouts in the span of October, November, December, January, four months. Okay. And no, three months. And, uh, I didn't really trust them to like put a workout on the board and go do weights and like use all the cool stuff that they had because I knew that they were going to do it with, you know, a deadlift with an insanely rounded back or they would just squat and just, you know, their heels would be lifted off the ground and they'd just be leaning way forward. And so I was like, look, you guys have to earn your way into the weight room. And so I said, if you guys can hold five minute positions, then we can progress to the weight room. And it was funny because none of them ever did. So we literally did isometrics every single day for one hour. And in a team setting, it was, I had to get kind of creative. So like for a lunge, I would have them like all create a big circle. So they were kind of uh, all facing each other and make them put their arms on each other's shoulders. Right. And I'd have them get into a lunge. And again, I, I couldn't really be too picky about form because, again, you got 20 kids. And all I can really do is just, hey, get as low as you can, right? Let's just make it hard. 
And then the cool thing was, is that if someone dropped and they could see each other in the circle, then everyone would stop and they'd have to add a minute. And so I kind of create some sort of competition with each other that they, that they would want to hold it. So they were actually getting some sort of fatigue, right? Because you can kind of cheat in a lunge, especially if I'm turned the other way. You can straighten your leg, rub it out, things like that. So same with like, well, I did wall sits, lunges. Um, I did uh, a lot of the iso crunch. I did the single leg raise a bunch. Um, did scat hang. I did push up just holding at the bottom position. Um, oh, and then the, the prone glute ham. So where you're laying on your stomach and your legs are bent at 40, knees are bent at 45 degrees and you just uh, try to lift your quads off the ground. It's a really good one for the hamstrings. Um, anyways, so I did October 1st, I did a uh, max bench and squat. And then December 16th, I redid their bench and squat. And I think maybe one or two times they got really pissy. And so I made them do a traditional uh, weightlifting workout where they did maybe like a four sets of six bench or whatever. So maybe two times they actually did a squat or a bench motion. And at the end of it, it was, it was 39 out of 42 guys all increased their bench. And it was 41 out of 42 guys all increased their squat. And I'm talking, some of them were 30, 40 pounds. There's one guy, he went from 280 to a 360 squat. Holy cow. Like, they were good numbers. Yeah, they were really good numbers. And, I mean, they could have they could have done more stuff on their own, um, like in the weight room, because, like I said, they had access to it. And I'm sure some of them did, and it helped. But from a three-month to get some kids to squat about 60 more pounds, um, it, it caught the coach's attention and their attention and they actually ended up having the best season in baseball, their regular season record. Fortunately for Tennessee, to go to state, you have to win one game. <laughs> and that one game, they ended up losing. I think they won like 32 games, and they lost six games that year. And so one of the games was going to state. So they didn't make it to state. But it was really cool to see them all like grow and excel. And um, none of them got big. Like It's not like they got bigger, but they definitely all felt stronger, faster. I had some guys hit home runs who had never hit home runs before. So it was a really cool experience. Yeah, I was going to ask. Really just making them hold isometrics. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you. That's so cool how transparent you are with that stuff. But it's so simple, too. It's not like, oh, here's this uh, you know, 20-week periodization plan and all these ins and outs. And new. It's, it's simple stuff. And I, yeah. I really like how you, uh, yeah, like you said, maybe some of them were going and lifting here and there, but you can't deny that, that the fundamental different change, right, was the isometrics. And I really yeah. like how you had like the group, the group factor, like putting hands on shoulders uh, and just, I, I, and just the bringing in that like emotional, emotional and ecological and social uh, element of that. Cause you, I, I am sure that that really boosted that, the outputs that people were going through when they were, um, when they were going to do that. And you yeah, know, you, yeah, yeah, well, I'm sure it also probably would keep people from cheating too badly. Cause like, well, like you said, it's yeah, exactly. everyone's technique, but the guy who is going to go just, if they're all by themselves, then someone would probably just be off way too, you know, way too high. I mean, we've, those of us who have coached isometrics, we, you know, you always have this person who, if you don't do that, which actually now that you said it, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to start doing that. Um, but you always have yeah. these people who are like, go lower and they just look at you and they're like, or they don't look at you and pretend like you didn't say anything to them. And, uh, 
it's it's just really yeah. com- it's just really common for people to to it, I, I, you have to create that greater purpose and it sounds like that was accomplishing a lot so it's really cool stuff but yeah I, I mean isometrics are such a powerful exercise and uh, one of the things that I've always curious with is uh, when is it time to move on uh, how do you know because I have heard uh, I, I was talking to a sports medicine uh, person from a professional organization and they were talking about an athlete that they had gotten who had trained with Jay Schrader and who had a huge like physical capacity in the work that they were doing but I believe this person had stopped doing isometrics after three weeks with Jay because I guess he didn't need to do them anymore and I was well my thought is well when when do you know you don't need to do them I mean I've seen training programs where it's something to the tune of you do four weeks where there's an emphasis on extreme isos and then you move on to other things I've heard other people who just use them all the time. I mean, obviously, then you have your act out when you use them. I believe it's three months. So, what? When do we know when an athlete's good? Like, when are we gonna? When are we gonna move? When are we gonna move past it? Yeah. So, um, I mean, again, this is just my experience. Um, but so, when you do an isometric, um, we talked about this in a lot the last podcast, right? How like this five minute is like this number that I do believe there's a lot of um, value to that five minutes, but I think a lot of people have the wrong interpretation of the five minutes. So they believe that like, Oh, once, you know, I need to get to five minutes, I need to hold this for five minutes. Right. And then like, I'm going to be good. Right. Or maybe then I can do the next thing and progress. And so um, the five minutes has to do with kind of the recovery system process within our body and kind of how um, our endocrine system um, uses the five minutes to kind of recycle things. And again, we talked about that in the last one, but when you do an isometric, you need, you need to be really in tune with yourself and you need to understand what's going on with your body and why you're doing an isometric and why you're constantly engaging and pulling yourself into position. And if you don't understand why you're doing that, then then you never really should progress out of isometrics until you can understand that. And it's not really like, it's not really, I can tell you, Hey, once you figure like, once you do this, then you can progress. It's really an internal feeling. Okay. So when you do, when you hold a wall sit for five minutes, right. And you're constantly pulling and engaging and you're allowing your body to just endure this, uh, you know, this pain and you've been reaching this threshold and understanding what's going on. And you're trying to lengthen certain muscles and you're trying to contract certain muscles and you're trying to eliminate compensations. Once you feel that and you can actually feel what it does to your body is my opinion, then you can progress on to different things because then you understand, okay, well, what's the purpose of this? And so an isometric to me, the purpose is you eliminate compensations. And so if you don't understand that you're limiting compensations and you just hold an isometric for five minutes, you could be still in a compensation that may be really good, that may make you a really good athlete. Like, don't get me wrong, but it's not going to, it's not going to progress you. You're essentially just strengthening that compensation. So until you can really understand and let go and understand that, Hey, every time I do an isometric, I should literally feel like my muscles are tearing apart. Every single time I get into this position, I should feel this muscle stay engaged and just 
try to fatigue it as fast as possible. Every time I do an isometric, I should feel like almost like an imbalance, right? Because you're playing this game of this tug and pull with, with your body. And if you don't feel that and you just kind of sit there and kind of zone out and just hold an isometric for five minutes, it's once you get to that five minute mark, you realize, okay, now that's easy. It's almost like you get to that point like, okay, I got to that, like you almost can just go for a run for 10 minutes now. And it'd be kind of like the same workout, right? You just zone out, cash out. So an isometric is, it's again, you have to feel it. And I know that's kind of a big buzzword now too, but like you really do. And it's something I can't be like, once you do this, then you can progress. You just have to understand what it feels like. And you have to be willing to, like I said, endure that, I mean, it's pain. I don't like calling it pain because to me, it actually feels good because I know I'm doing something good for my body kind of for the greater good, but it is like, it's pain. It's like, you want to make sure that you're trying to make your body better. So understanding that to me is the most important thing when you do isometrics, because then once you figure out that position and what it is to, to pull and push and create that position, then you can apply that to anything else that you do. So once you've mastered that, then you can move on. You can do altitude drops, you can do rebounds, because you know that with the intention of doing it, you have this background knowledge of, oh yeah, this is what's supposed to feel like, this is what's happening in my body. And that's what creates, in my opinion, like a super athlete, kind of when you can figure that out. And um, I mean, I'm not saying I figured that out, right? Um, I'm definitely in the isometric phase where I'm still just figuring out how my body works and trying to figure out how to squeeze certain muscles. Because honestly, guys, it literally takes years to figure this out. If someone says that I figured out in a couple months, right, they're either like the most gift, you know, gifted athlete in the world or, you know, they're lying, essentially. Yeah, it's I I really like that you said that because I I think that so many people are looking for the magic bullet in training as if there's a coverall magic bullet and the optimal exercise is the one that's right for you at the time. And then at some point yeah. it's, it becomes a end unto itself. Like weightlifting can eventually become an end unto itself. Like ultimately the only thing that matters the most is the sport skill that you are that you are doing. And so to think that oh this this magic bullet exercise will benefit me forever it's good to hear that that point, but I also like that it's not um, necessarily quantitative. Like I think everybody, I think especially in the sports performance industry, is there's a lot of that. Um, oh, just tell me a number. Just give me something that is numerically when or why. We, I think, we tend to not focus enough on things like feeling and connecting, <laughs> and like you had yeah. even incorporated with your group the emotional and social elements of the movements and a lot of those types of things and getting athletes just to feel and understand their own bodies that's something that's been really big for me this last um, year or two i would say two years yeah is getting athletes huge. just to sense themselves <laughs> and understand where they are in space and to use whatever feedback uh like even just like putting your hands on your ribs or your low back or your your pelvic bones as you do various movements to understand it what's happening because a lot of athletes like will just will go through with absolutely no clue they have absolutely no clue where their body is in yeah. space and where joints are in space and things are. And I, to me, that's what's being athletic is very much revolving around knowing where your body is in space. Because if you can't do that, then you have a lot of issues. Yeah, it's the, uh, I like when you said the whole kind of cause and effect. Like people are like, listen to a coach blindly, which isn't a bad thing necessarily sometimes, but it's like, okay, if you, if I do this, then, then this should happen. Right. And so they just 
keep thinking that if I do this, this should happen. And they just forget about all the stuff in between, right? Mm -hmm. They forget about the feel and what's going on with their body. And a lot of people are out of tune with that for sure. Yeah. Yes. That the process is, is so important. The, 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 in the moment process. And I, it's good to hear that anecdote yeah. and that example, especially something as, as difficult, but as rewarding as thysymmetrics. I, I want to get to the next question. Cause I, I, it's, it's a big one and it's one we've talked about a little bit before. Really intriguing to me, but, uh, tracking central nervous system fatigue. What's your opinion on like, the importance of that? How do we do it? Concepts revolving around um, intensive training systems, you know, obviously things that have a lot of like like depth drops or plyometrics or any intensive training loads, uh, heavy weightlifting. How do we track CNS fatigue and why is it? Yeah. Important? So from, um, from my profession, being a chiropractor, I, I see this a lot. And basically CNS fatigue um, it's kind of a fancy word for just too stressed, right? Your body gets thrown into a sympathetic state, your fight or flight response. And once that happens, you, you lose your ability to think consciously and especially kind of, uh, um, in the moment, right? Your, your survival instincts kind of, st uh, kick in. And so CNS fatigue is basically that in a nutshell. Um, so when you're training, Right. And if you go into that survival state, right, you're essentially now doing more harm than you are doing good. OK, and I don't mean harm as in you're doing something bad to your body. Uh, you can sometimes, but I don't want everyone to think like, oh, you know, it's the worst thing ever. Um, I'm just saying you've reached your max for that day. And any time, any more you go past that, it's like diminishing returns. So the more effort you give in, the less gain that you're going to get. So in my opinion, from an athletic standpoint, you know, what's the point? And our kind of old philosophy is, oh, it builds mental toughness, right? And that's kind of a huge thing that I feel like people are kind of straying away from, but was huge back in the day, right? We need to be mentally tough. We need to be mentally tough. And actually being, being sympathetic, um, is, is I think the opposite of being mentally tough, right? If, if you train to, to be parasympathetic and relaxed, right? It, that's actually harder to stay in that state when you train than, um, to essentially get kicked in the sympathetic because it doesn't require like thinking conscious thought, you just kind of go. So it's actually easier on the body but it creates a lot more wear and tear on your system. And you actually have to recover a lot longer if you use that system way more than if you stay kind of in your relaxed rest and digest um, state. And so CNS fatigue for me, um, I actually use the breath to watch CNS fatigue. And so like I talked about earlier, breathing, you breathe 17,000 times a day and our body wants to breathe very efficiently, right? So if we have to, um, if we're stressed and, you know, sometimes when people are anxious, their breathing gets short and shallow. So you're actually taking that 17,000 times a day and you're upping it to about 30,000 times a day if you're staying in that stress response. And that's almost double of the amount of resources our body has to use to maintain a breath, right? And we're going to keep breathing regardless because if we don't, we die. So now you're actually wasting all these resources that you could be doing training, doing something else on just breathing. And so as soon as I see the breath go, um, and I don't mean breathing hard, okay? I actually mean where you start breathing. So it's more of like an initiation. So 
Are you inhaling from your um, lower abdomen and is the wave going up, right? And then when you exhale, is it the reverse? Is it going back down, right? When you see a lot of people who are in that fight or flight, their breath, their initiation starts right at their chest and it goes up to their neck and that's all you see, right? Their lower abdomen does not move at all. And so once you see that, I already know that they're pretty toast and it could be that they got into it and they can actually get themselves out of it. But um, if you do something long enough, you'll eventually see them being in that state, even when they're sitting down in that rest still. So if they've done their exercise and they can't bring their breath back down, then you know that they've kind of reached their fatigue. Another huge one is the eyes. So when your eyes are dilated, okay, you know that you're in a sympathetic state. Um, so um, dilation is like one of the easiest ones. And some people, it's hard, right? Because what do they do? They take a bunch of pre-workout and it's got a bunch of caffeine and so they're all amped up and their eyes get dilated then. So it's the same thing. That, that pre-workout is now pushing you into that sympathetic state. And what people don't realize is that it's kind of nice to be in a sympathetic state, right? Again, you don't have to think, right? And all of a sudden, it's easier, okay? And you're working out and you're feeling good. So the more you do that, you're actually, again, um, making your body become more efficient in an inefficient way. And that's the hardest part because now you're staying in the sympathetic state. And then now once you try to train the other way, your body actually doesn't like it and it wants to be in the sympathetic state. And so you got to watch that sometimes. And I see that a lot. And so a lot of people will train in a sympathetic state and now, now they can't train unless they're in a sympathetic state. And that's when you got to really take a step back and be like, okay, I got to figure out how to break this compensation. Like I said, that's a conversation all within itself. So CNS fatigue is huge. Okay. It's, it's not only a part of training, it's a part of daily life. You got to see when you are too stressed and you got to figure out a way to not be sympathetic. And I know it's like, um, it's kind of like a lot easier said than done. Um, oh yeah, I'm not stressed. Right. But, your breath will tell you. Your, you know, me, me saying I'm not stressed means nothing. It's your body tells you if you're stressed or not. So the breath is huge, and so, um, and that's what I use in my practice. I use my, I use the breath all the time. I watch people breathe, and I see where they breathe. Are they breathing? Um, and I don't say belly breathing, because belly breathing I don't think is that efficient. Um, but it's, are you breathing from your lower abdomen? Are you initiating from your pelvic floor? And is the wave going up? Because that's the most efficient way to breathe. Um, and then again, are you exhaling correctly? Um, so things like that. Um, tracking eye movements is also a good one. Um, your pursuits. Um, the pursuits is a very cortical-driven uh, movement. Uh, actually, it's not. Just kidding. But <laughs> pursuits, um, well, like if they're really choppy, then you know that they're getting to that fatigue point. So um, you can just, like I said, track pursuits. I don't know, little tricks like that. What's a pursuit, by the way? Is it this like a rapid shift in eyes where they have to follow something? Or what, what is that exactly? No, it's like a smooth pursuit. So it's like if you were to, it's tracking. So you can do it two ways, really. You can have them stare at something, and then they turn their head to the left and right, and you see if their eyes stay fixated, Right or vice versa, you have, like you just hold your thumb out in front of you and you move your thumb slowly to the right and you want to have your eyes stay fixated. And so if they can't, if it's not a smooth pursuit, meaning like if the eyes are like choppy, 
like it like bounces as you move your thumb, then you know that they're reaching some sort of CNS fatigue or there's a fuel problem or again, some sort of CNS um, dysfunction that you want to address. Because then this goes back to my initial point, our, our body craves stabilization. And so our brain takes priority, our you know, sp spine takes priority and makes sure that those things are all good before we kind of externally move out. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, it makes you think a lot. Um, well, uh, first off, I like what you said about the belly breathing because I do think that's overemphasized. <laughs> I like you yeah. talked about where to initiate. And I know people have said initiate. You, you could say initiate from the belly. I like you how you say like from the pelvic floor, like really deep down there. And I've seen people like like Paul Check talking about, well, the first you know X amount should be from the belly and then the chest can go. And the chest should the chest should move. <laughs> I oh, absolutely. It's, I think Actually, I mean, our, our first rib moves all the way up in our neck. I mean, our, it's, it's one big fluid movement is what should happen, right? Everything's moving. It's just how well is it moving, right? Where is it starting? Is it only moving halfway? And, that, and that's the things that kind of um, you can get really nitpicky with the breath. And that's what I like doing because the breath doesn't lie. It tells you exactly where your state is. So... Yeah, I I really like um, something that I drew a parallel to was someone playing a team sport. If you're in sympathetic, if you're too much in fight or flight and you're you're not open and aware, or you get high anxiety through due to certain gameplay situations. This is all in my head because I just did a podcast recently with Cam Joss and Fergus Connolly on like game, you know, game changer in the process and how like global dynamics of team sports. So it's fresh in my head, but it makes sense to me that if you were in that fight or flight state and your pursuit ability, your tracking ability would decrease, your ability to see the ball properly would probably decrease and uh -huh. all your game skills essentially. And you would have to probably compensate I've seen players who are in a fairly stressed out state and I watch them play and I see that some, sometimes they'll even um, be turning their whole head instead of being able to turn their eyes. It's like their head is kind right? of jerking back and forth instead of their eyes. And I think to myself, wow, like this most definitely has to do with a stress level response. Probably multifactorial really, but definitely a stress level response being a strong part of that and the anxiety of being in that position. Yeah, and just kind of tying it together with isometrics, when you hold a position, it's actually really hard to go into CNS fatigue when you're doing an isometric. I think that's what makes them so unique in its own because let's say you're trying to squeeze and you're holding the position, right? And then all of a sudden you fail. Your body is going to fail first before you go into CNS fatigue because it's not going to allow you to, right? You're essentially just sitting on a wall. Like why would you go into CNS fatigue when you're sitting on a wall? So that's why another thing I like isometrics, it's really hard to gain or get into that fight or flight response. Um, and then, and then also it helps you maintain in the, in the opposite when you do an isometric. So in order to hold it five minutes, you almost need to maintain a level of calmness, right? Like focus to actually get to that five minutes or staying engaged, making sure your muscles are engaged. It requires so much thinking that it's like, okay, in order to do this, I actually got to relax this for a second. Okay. I got to suck in my belt. Okay. I got to take a breath. It requires all this thinking that doesn't allow you to go in that sympathetic state. So that's another reason why isometrics are extremely beneficial um, on multiple levels. So I, I agree. I, I really enjoy those. Just everything you're saying helps me to piece together the how and the process of these exercises. Because 
It is, and I will say too, for the sake of, I know that what's becoming popular, I think this is awesome, is like the tendon health benefits of doing isometrics. And I think that that you can have a probably very suboptimal process and still get some good tendon health benefits. But all the other coordinative yeah. processes of the body are more de- de- um, determined or dependent on a lot of the other things you're talking about. And as well as the breathing and the breath work. I, I wanted to ask you as well, how does... So let's say you're doing a set of uh, something, even anything else too, like a set of like weightlifting or perhaps altitude drops or any other modality in the weight room. Do you, are you sticking with the same general breathing qualities? Are you preferring nose breaths over mouth breathing? Is there, what's, how does that shake out with other things besides isometrics? Yeah, well, again, just my philosophy on life and just being healthy is you have to breathe properly remember our body is going to breathe efficiently regardless because it's one of the most abundant things that we do so if you can't apply proper breathing techniques to really anything you do then that should be step one in whatever exercise you do in my opinion um and, and to do that i do like nose breathing um nose breathing allows you to keep um uh, doesn't make you shallow right it actually forces you to take deep breaths um Let's see here, getting into any position, right? So I actually see this a lot. So if you, people, and again, you can you can kind of mix this up, right? Like if you're actually doing a set that, that you have a goal where you're like, I'm trying to lift as much weight as I can this rep, then actually you can hold your breath because hold because sometimes it's not needed, right? But it's for a different purpose. It's not for like, okay, just, okay, I know I'm attaining this one rex map or one rep max. So the breath thing kind of goes out of the way. Um, Obviously, when you do the one rep max, you actually want to inhale. You want to stabilize your core extremely well, um, making sure that the breath doesn't leak, um, et cetera, things like that. But really just nose breathing um, and making sure that you're, you're breathing from your lower abdomen. It's kind of like the, the simplest way I can put it. Um, again, not belly breathing. You don't push your belly out. It's almost like a, you're trying to fill your, your abdomen up on all levels, right? So the side should expand, the lower part should expand, and almost even the back should feel like it's, it's expanding. Um, and then, yeah, really, like I said, in any modality in the weight room. But again, that's, that's me and my philosophy um, for just general health and then also optimal health and being a better human being, really. Yeah, I, I like it, man. I, breathing is so important. I In our last few minutes, I definitely want to get to some of these last questions here. And I'm really interested in these. So let's start with super compensation. Uh, how do we acquire, or let me say this. I, I know you've talked about how the modern way of tapering for a peak level is flawed and not as efficient as other ways. So can you tell me a little bit more about that as well as just general processes of super compensation the way you see it? Yeah. So, okay. So I was a swimmer, um, my whole life and the most, you know, tapering was a huge thing in swimming. And I think it's uh, common in track too, right? Don't you guys taper for it, track? It is, it is, it's bigger and it's definitely bigger. Having spent time in both worlds is definitely bigger in swimming. Yeah. It's just, it's huge in swimming. So this is why I, uh, this is where I'm coming from when it comes to this. So basically tapering, um, in a nutshell is you, you train, um, you overtrain, but the word overtrain is kind of funny because you're when you overtrain, you're training submaximally, right? Um, let's say 
if I were to tell you to run a 200 at your fastest pace, um, you know, 10 times, you might, you might get it that first one, but those rest of the nine, you won't be at your fastest velocity. Okay. So you essentially, um, are training sub maximally. Okay. So that's what I mean by sub maximally. Cause that first one is your max and that's, that's it. You gave it your all and then you don't give yourself enough time to recover. And so you, you continue your nine. So in swimming, that's huge, right? You train sub maximally for months at a time. Right. And then you create this rest period for a week, two weeks, a month, depending on your tapering schedule. And everyone tapers different too. And then your body then essentially has time to take that beat down, right? And recover, but then it recovers and it creates this compensation that essentially you are then not going to be faster than you were previous time you did a a taper. And it it works well, right? Like you do actually create a compensation where you do swim your fastest. You create a new max velocity when you swim a race, um, but it takes a really long time. Okay. Um, and, the, and then again, the philosophy is the longer you beat yourself down, the more of a compensation you will get. And I do agree with that, but in, in the swimming world, it sucked. Cause that would, that would be months. Right. And then on top of that, like, what if you miss your taper, right? Then you actually don't swim well and you don't swim your fastest, which happens actually quite often too. So now it's like, you feel like you've wasted this time. So creating like that compensation that way is to me, it's flawed because you, you're training sub maximally, right? And when you train and we think of isometrics and high velocity, like you want to be fast. If you're trying to get faster, you want to be as fast as you can. And so when you, and again, this is, my um, hypothesis, quote unquote, um, I don't know this for a fact. I've talked to a few people who's experienced this and I've actually experienced it a little bit myself, but when you do isometrics, okay, remember we're talking about isometric is velocity training and you're pulling as, as hard as you can. You're essentially creating a max velocity every single time. So you're training at max velocity. Um, now, when you do something over and over um, in the same thing, our body adapts, right? It adapts and actually learns to do it better and better and better and better. And this is like, I don't know why I just thought of this analogy. It's definitely not the best analogy, but I'm going to say it anyways. So like if you have like a 10 year old, right? And you give them a 50 piece puzzle and that first time they do it, it takes them two hours, right? And then the next day you give them the same puzzle and then it takes them an hour. And the next day, it's the same puzzle. It takes them 30 minutes, et cetera. The next day, the next day, the next day. And then it gets to the point where they can do it essentially with their eyes closed, right? So when you do isometrics, you actually create that type of uh, stimulus and response within your body, okay? So you hold something for five minutes one day. And I urge everyone to, to try this out, right? Because you're not going to know until you experience it. So just... Just think of like a workout. You have like a push-up, a scat hang, two lunges, like a glute ham. Just pick like five or six isometrics and do them five minutes, but really stay engaged, like what we were talking about, um, contracting, pulling. And that next day, right, you're going to feel like shit, all right? And it's going to be tired and you're like, oh, I'm sore. If you truly max contracted. Now, if you went through the motions, you won't be sore, but you can get sore from doing, extremely sore from doing isometrics. And then the next day, even though you're sore, do the same thing, the same six, five minutes, max contract, fight through it, right? 
And then the next day, do the same thing. Max contract, go through everything as hard as you can. And then the same thing the next day. You'll actually start to feel your body being able to recover from each one quicker every single time to the point where you aren't even sore at all when you do them. And then now actually the next day you do them, you go in and you're feeling stronger, like you can contract harder and pull harder. And then even more the next day. So it's almost like this linear um, way of just making gains every single day. But again, it's very intentful and it requires a lot of work and that you can't go into sympathetics mode. You have to be calm. You have to be patient. You have to feel the things going on in your body. Right? So then we all heard Jay talk about to recover while you train. And to me, this is the, this is what it is in my opinion, when he talks about that, because when you do an isometric, your body learns to literally recover so fast from doing it that you're stronger the next day. And then you do the same thing and it comes back the next day. But people don't usually go that far because they do it three or four days in a row and they're like, oh my God, I feel like shit. I can't do this. I was like, of course you are. You've never done this. Your body's never endured this ever in its life, gone through this much stimulus in your body. So they usually stop, right? But if you keep going after like two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, right? Then you really start to feel it. You're like, wow, I'm doing this and I actually feel like so good the next day. And I'm doing, I feel so good the next day. So you're creating this base, right? And then now in order to get this, you know, so-called super compensation, you've done the same thing over and over, but your body is so used to recovering so quickly. Now you switch the trait, right? So instead of doing five minutes, isometrics, X, Y, Z, whatever you did, change it to maybe rebounds or some really high fast movements with light weights or an altitude drop where you're dropping from the sky, you know, a thousand reps a day because now your body is so used to recovering. You add a new stimulus. The body kind of freaks out, but it has no idea what to do except to recover insanely fast. So now you've created this compensation and you feel like, you're on fire. Like you just go. And that compensation doesn't last forever. It's only when you switch that trait, but you create that compensation, you, you create that base and you switch the trait. And again, your body has no other, like no other choice, but to just recover. And you literally just, I don't know. You just, I've, I've heard that you you feel like you can do anything, right? Like you go through the most grueling workout and at the end of it, you're setting new max records, right? You're going through um, an insane practice with your team, but you go home and like you feel like like nothing ever happened. Like your body just recovers insanely fast. So I've never experienced that super compensation, but I have done that isometrics where you literally do the same isometrics over and over and over and over and over again. And literally when you do them, your body like it's it like craves it the next day. It's like waiting for it to happen so that it can get that stimulus and that feeling and that recovery feeling and that hormonal response. And when I did the isometrics, I I actually put on a glorified Fitbit and I burned seven thousand calories in one day just from doing isometrics alone. And then the next day, I actually didn't do any isometrics, and my body was still burning 4,000 calories just from doing my daily things. I actually gained 16 pounds in, I, in muscle mass. Like, it wasn't fat. 
in a six week span of just doing isometrics alone. Like the same, the same ones you had your baseball team doing basically. Yeah. So I think it was, um, it was, it was like 11 that I picked, but they were all standard, like lunges, single leg raises, a glute ham, um, a push up, I think like a rear delt, a front delt, um, and then a scapping, something like that. Yeah. I love it. That stuff's awesome, man. I, I, it's, do you think, cause I, I'm always trying to make parallels between Jay's system and say, and other systems in existence that are also unique. Uh, one of which is, uh, Anatoly Bondarchuk's uh, throws training system where they essentially do the same set of exercises every day for until the athlete adapts. So the extra, like the, the way you throw the shot puts always the same. The special strength is always the same. The weightlifting's the same. The, the general, everything's the same until you, adapt and you aren't adapting meaning you aren't getting any better your performance finally starts to tail off a little bit improvements but yeah it's that was always interesting to me uh because not everyone in that would adapt like it wasn't the most common there was three types of adapters i don't think it was the most common just to get really good right away a lot of people would go down first before they got good at it and it yeah. does make me think there is that trust the, trust, the trust period, you know, that, yeah. that trust period, and that, which is difficult, I think, psychologically for a lot of people. You, you do something and initially it's like, oh, wait, I don't feel very good for these first few weeks. Um, or, yeah, you so, feel shitty. I mean, you're so sore, your body aches. But when you go through the motions, you're like, oh, but I actually still can contract. I actually still can do these things. So it's kind of a mental game, too. <clears throat> Yeah, it's always. Int- do you think that? So you're saying that with the isometrics, the adaptation curve. Do you feel like the isometrics, like compare that to you? Like you said, you you get better at that, then you can start doing more altitude drops or more of another type of stimulus. Do you think that principle applies more so to isometrics than other types of training, in terms of the ability of it to recover you for, versus say? I'm going to go do 500 depth drops a day or something. I mean, could that theoretically, would that ever get to a point where it would recover you? I, but I was, there's a higher nervous yeah. system demand on a depth jump or depth drop than an ISO lunge. Yeah. So, but, so again, you would have to be able to pro- progress through the isometrics first. You couldn't start with an altitude drop in my opinion, because an isometric is kind of that baseline. You got to eliminate those compensations. Because let's say when you so a depth jump is a very high velocity movement, right? Because when you land, your body's got to contract and absorb that force extremely fast. And so, um, if you are land in a compensation, then your body is then working to essentially recover from that bad compensation. And so you're not going to create that base or that super compensation. So that it starts with the isometrics. You need to be able to eliminate all the compensations or be able to feel the difference because. If you, like, let's say on a depth jump, you land, if you know what good position is and you land incorrectly, you immediately fix it, right? So you're like, oh, this next one, I'm going to land this way. Or maybe you lower down and you're like, okay, that's it for today. I've created a compensation. I need to stop and I'll go again at it tomorrow. So an isometric, you can do as many as you want, because again, you're not, you're, or sorry, you can, you can continually do a lot knowing that or with the intention that you're trying to limit the compensation right not going through the motions so does that that answer your question yeah absolutely yeah the hierarchy of training it's awesome stuff man well hey i i think there was one more question i wanted to ask you but i think that's about it or the time all the time i have for the show today sadly i look forward to the next time we get to chat mark i always love chatting with you so thanks for being on yeah it was a good one 
All right, that does it for another show. Thanks, guys, for listening. We appreciate having you here on this journey with us, learning about all corners of the athletic performance field. Extreme isometrics, certainly a very unique training method, so it's always great to dig into that universe, extreme slows, compensations, and the nervous system. It's just, it's kind of like endless, but I, I, I love continuing to learn and refine my methods and ideas and getting a bigger view of the whole picture. Anyways. If you enjoyed the show, please don't hesitate to leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Stitcher. You definitely are really supporting us and the mission we have, what we're doing by going ahead and doing that. Also, our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, been a longtime sponsor of the show, so be sure to support them and what they are doing. We definitely appreciate them. All right, I'm signing off for today. We'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.